0: You're listening to a 95BFM podcast.
1: From our studio to yours, it's various (laughs) artists with Francis
2: and Liam.
3: Ah, the perils of student radio.
2: It's it's the way that it goes, you know, sometimes news just doesn't exist. Ah yeah, tenakoto kato ko liam
3: toku my key, various artists more wiki. Welcome to various artists for this week. My name is Francis. My
2: name is Liam and we will be with you for the next hour.
3: This is your guide to the big wide art world of Tamaki Makoto and beyond for this week. How are you doing today, Liam?
2: I'm doing good. There's been a lot of kind of like running around between different spots over the past week of just kind of, you think that you're on the uni break and then everything is calm and then you sign yourself up for different things. So I've kind of just been running between my flat and various spots in Auckland, so getting my steps in, thankfully.
3: <laughs> Ever the busy bee, aren't you? F.I. Akine coming up on the show today. We are first off joined in the studio by art historian and gallery coordinator at Michael Lit Victoria Wynne-Jones, to talk about the life of the late Jim Allen, who passed a few weeks ago.
2: I had a chat to Renee Liang from Thriving at Crossroads, a University of Auckland study looking for young members of, eth- of ethnic minorities from Aotearoa to take part in their paid arts workshop program.
3: I speak to Soundcheck's sexual harm prevention and response advisor Mal Carlsbert about sexual harm in the arts in the wake of James Wallace losing name suppression on Wednesday.
2: And finally we have your art guide for Tamaki Makoto
3: this week. He a o fukaro. we would love to hear your thoughts on these pieces so tukupā himai. you can get in touch with us on 5395 Wai you can give us a call in the studio we're on 3093879. Also
2: after the show Kaoa e ware ware e a Ano o 95BFM You can catch all these chats and more by podcast on the 95BFM website, 95BFM.com.
4: Various artists with Francis and Liam. So you can go to the opening for more than just the snacks.
3: In the first week of June, visual artist and arts foundation icon Jim Allen passed away aged 100. Allen's installations are on display around the country and he played a significant role in arts education. But instead of me telling you about Jim today, in the studio we have with us a guest who knew him very well. Kia ora Victoria, how are you? Yes, you're going to... Kia
4: ora. I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs>
3: it's great to have you on the show in that lovely, lovely mic-turning noise. Um, do you want to start by describing your relationship with Jim?
4: Sure. Uh, um, I met Jim in 2010. I was doing my honours in art history at the University of Auckland and I was really interested in, I guess, dematerialised art practices and there weren't really any postgrad courses on that. So Caroline Verko, who was my supervisor, set up an internship for me with Michael at Gallery. And at the time, um, they were working on a big new book with Jim Allen and they required support for that process. And so I worked with Jim on collating images and photographs for that book. So that involved um, spending a lot of time with him going through his archives at the time he was 88 years old and synthesizing that material together.
3: For any listeners that don't know uh, who Jim Allen was, can you gloss over the trajectory of his life in the arts very quickly?
4: Sure. So Jim was an artist, an educator, and also a sailor. And he was born in Wellington in 1922. Uh, He was always very interested in art from a young age at school. Um, His father served in Gallipoli and in Palestine, so he came from a family with a lot of military service. So he himself served in World War II. He went across when he was 18 and spent a lot of time in Italy. And when he finished, when the war ended, he um, got to study art in Florence, um, and then he returned to New Zealand and studied sculpture at Canterbury University. And from there, he got a scholarship to go to the Royal College of Arts in London, which not many New Zealanders have done. Other artists who did that were Ralph Hotere and Billy Apple. Um, And then he returned to New Zealand and really interestingly started teaching art to children. So he was involved in the Northern Māori Art Project, and he taught in places like um, Oro Aiti in Northland. And he worked with an educator there called Elwyn Richardson, who had a very radical approach to teaching children. And so they had a very integrated, child-led uh, way of teaching where they would do art and science and creative writing and poetry all together. And so they're amazing pictures of Jim in like a shirt and tie, building kilns with students, like oh, digging up clay. Um, so he had that kind of radical way of looking at um, educating. And then in 1961, he started teaching at Elam And he taught there until the 1970s, at which point he moved to Sydney, taught at the Sydney College of Arts for 10 years and then returned to New Zealand where he started practicing as an artist again.
3: Mm. Well, quite an extraordinary life. Um, it really was. Yeah, <laughs> And we'll get um, into some of the legacy of his art um, education in a little bit. Um, but obviously you worked with him quite mm-hmm. closely through the gallery um, and as his assistant supporting him with his book. Can you describe what Jim was like as a person? What was it like sure. to sit down and have a cup of tea with him?
4: So uh, Jim was a very physically strong person but also incredibly kind and supportive and in my experience as a young woman often when I would meet great men um it would always be about celebrating them as like patriarchs and they'd be quite intimidating and people like beneath their station had to be seen and not heard Jim was the absolute opposite of that he was Mm -hmm. always listening he was always interested in what young grads were doing he would read all the art magazines when I met him when he was 88. All he wanted to know was like what was going on now. So he was very young at heart. Uh, he was a very supportive and kind person. We did drink a lot of tea together. Mm. He would also prepare me a little tray with biscuits and cheese and tomato. And so he was a very <laughs> like nurturing, kind, um, supportive person. And he was a joy to be around. And he's incredibly wise and lovely. Mm,
3: and much missed, I imagine. Um, he will circle back to art education uh, now which he had a strong influence on both here mm-hmm. and I believe in Australia. Yes. Can you describe what their influence was in how Jim approached art teaching?
4: Sure, so I think um, the reason why I sort of mentioned his father serving is that his father was also a carrier so he worked with trucks and in, during the war Tim, uh, Jim also did a lot of work with um, as a kind of engineer. So I think he had a kind of, through working in that capacity or working with like trucks and transport and logistics and being involved in the war, he had a very like practical can-do problem-solving men- like, and also mechanical mindset, which I think was a very unique approach to art making. And I think combined with that is what he learned from Elwood Richardson and the Northern Māori Art Project and an approach to pedagogy, which was quite about fundamentals but also quite radical and not limited by um, precedents or prior art movements like something quite immediate and practical so I think he brought that kind of mechanical problem-solving sensibility together with an almost like reminiscent of Bauhaus like fundamental sense of play and materials Mm. um, with him when he went to Elam and he kind of combined that with what he had experienced through being a student in London and being someone sort of trained in like a 19th century approach to sculpture, a very kind of academic approach, but then seeing what was going on in the art world at the time um, in London. So all of that together uh, meant that he had a really unique approach. So there's a story that when he arrived at Elam, the students had taken all of the um plaster casts of the classical sculptures and thrown them in the gully and it's oh this really gosh. great metaphor for like just casting the past aside mm. and when he came in he started um encouraging use of like metal works and bronze and different materials and that kind of involved uh, evolved into a real interest in um working with technology and a dematerialized approach to art making in the 70s at mm. elam yeah and how
3: much do you think of that approach to art education remains today in the teaching institution?
4: Well, I'm not a, currently a student at Elam, <laughs> so I can't say. But I can say that I think Jim has, I feel, his legacy at Elam. So at the time when he was there, that was when the Elam Library was set up. That was also when they set up a um, programme for artists and residents to come teach at Elam. And also that's when they started to really get into crits and talking to each other in the studios. And um, one of the most interesting things about his tenure at Elam teaching sculpture is that he organised tremendous amounts of events in coordination with like, the Auckland Council and Auckland Art. Gal- it was called Auckland City Gallery at the time. So there are sort of images of um, massive installations outside the Civic Theatre. So that kind of collaboration between... Um, Elam, the council um, you know, engineering firms logistics and people, you could see um, these events taking place around the city I think is quite inspiring and is something that we could maybe aspire to do again yeah and, yeah. It,
3: and extends art outside of the walls of the institution exactly, and allows yes. it to be yep. in public spaces um, we were speaking off air about this interview that you have of um, Jim and Len Lai yes. um, speaking about art but all they wanted to, t- to talk about was art teaching do you want to yep. describe that and perhaps explain why you think they held such value in art teaching uh, for the future uh, or
4: success of art Sure. Um, So one thing that I neglected to mention is I think part of his um, effect in Elam was it was driven by he had a sabbatical in 1968 where he traveled the world and he went to the UK, the US, Brazil, Europe, and he was really there at the time of um, massive student movements. And he was so very inspired by that and the political movements and the kind of activism that he saw. So he really brought that all back when he came back to Elam. Um, But during that sabbatical year, he went to New York and he spoke to Len Lai. And they had a a really quite elaborate discussion on education. And there's just a little quote that I just think is really great that I'll read Mm. aloud. So Jim is saying, I tend to see in students that arrive within my orbit at the early stages of art school as being disintegrated personalities because the system has splintered them so much. So therefore, I try to do the opposite and create a situation a climate or environment of feeling which is an integrated one where anything goes anything can be talked about where any issues can be raised and one can tackle this and it can grow into any kind of thing at all so another quote that Jim said is that like I can't teach anyone anything he was very much about just creating an environment where teaching and learning can happen and making yes. that space and I think that's quite uh, a good thing to think about. Yeah,
3: Yeah. absolutely. Jim's orbit. I I love that. Um, And that philosophy, I guess, is reflected in his own art practice and what we might call immersive art experience. Can you give example of some of Jim's work?
4: Sure. I think for me the quintessential um, photograph of Jim is him sort of wearing a black T-shirt and jeans standing amidst this um, installation called um, New Zealand Environment Number five from 1969, which was shown at the Govett-Brewster, and it's, so it's an installation that consists of um, oiled wool, wood chips, um, hessian, and green neon, and so he's kind of bathed in this the cast of this green light. And if you think about the materials in this work, like oiled wool and wood chips, it really points to sort of like primary industries and the way in which um, Aotearoa is meant to function as a place where raw materials are kind of extracted and exported to the world. And just even his use of light um, means that it includes whoever is in proximity to it because the light, you know, changes how you appear. And he did another work from 1969 called Small Worlds, which involved um, a big PVC inflatable cube which sat on a bed of um, a hessian as well, and then there were this, There was a UV light with all these threads, nylon threads coming down that you could kind of pass through. And within the threads um, were printed lines of poetry from Hone Tuwhore. Mm. So very much um, experiential, like moving through sculpture. Um, and so that's those are kind of two of the early installations, which are obviously very experiential. And then in the 1970s, he did poetry for Chainsaws, which is a really great work where he... Um, After he left Elam, he went to uh, Adelaide and did a residency at the Experimental Art Foundation uh, where he did this performance called Poetry for Chainsaws where he read out the poem Howl by Allen Ginsberg to a series of chainsaws which moved around the room and he was Mm. barefoot um, reciting poetry to them. And then uh, there was Contact, which is a three-part performance, and the the first part, Computer Dance, involved performers with receivers and transmitters interacting with each other with blindfolds and then the second part parangole capes involved um, sensory deprivation and performers being restricted by these um, like pod costumes which they then kind of freed themselves from and then the third part body articulation imprint involves um, performers playing with paint and kind of painting each other and it just becomes this big almost orgiastic frenzy of paint and bodies Mm -hmm. so quite dionysian Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, quite, quite extraordinary works. Um, would recommend to listeners, uh, having a little rummage on the internet, um, if you can, to have a look at, at some of Jim's work. And his passing is, of course, difficult. He was very, um, very loved, uh, but it's also given us time to reflect on his extraordinary life. Uh, I guess my final question to you, Victoria, is how do you think his life and work will continue to impact the art world?
4: I think in two ways. Very like Physically, um, he did a massive amount of commissions throughout the country. If you take a walk down in Tamaki Makaurau, you will see um, Michio Ihara's Wind Tree, which is a sculpture in Silo Park, um, and then Helen Escobado Cursibon's Signals artwork, which is at the end of the Strand in Parnell. These are two public sculptures that came to Aotearoa when he organised a sculptural symposium, and they remain here, sitting in the city. Um, he also worked on the Fortuna Chapel in Karori in Wellington. Um, he did a big mural at the Hocken Library. In Dine- so he, and he's done many churches and public sculptural commissions across the country. So physically he is present everywhere. But I think more importantly, a lot of people refer to him as a kind of godfather of contemporary art. And, um, you know, we have such a rich tradition of art making in New Zealand that stretches for centuries. But I think Jim... Jim's time at Elam in the 70s is really recognised as kind of a, a birth of art as we know it today, like very um, international in orientation um, and very kind of cutting edge. And his legacy is also felt, continues to be felt um, at Elam and in structures that he set up and it approaches to teaching and learning, which I hope continue.
3: Mm. Well, thank you very much, Victoria, for your time this, uh, today. This afternoon, we are indeed into the afternoon. That was art historian and uh, Michael Lett Gallery Coordinator, Victoria Wynne-Jones, speaking with me about the life of Jim Allen. You were on Various Artists, and we will be back after this short break. BFM presents The Other's Way. December 1st, the first day of summer. The iconic multi-venue music festival returns to Tamaki Makoto. Over 30 acts. Bigger.
5: Better. Bolder. The Other's Way, December 1st across K Road.
1: Early birds available now from under the radar.
2: Slideshow rodeo comedy night. Friday, June 30th at the Tuning Fork. One topic, one Microsoft presentation programme,
1: four comedians, one winner. Join some of Aotearoa's finest comedians as they battle it out for the coveted prize of best PowerPoint presentation. Featuring Tom Sainsbury, Hayley Sproul, Abby Howes, Courtney Dawson and hosted by Tim Batt, Slideshow Rodeo Can't Be Missed. Slideshow Rodeo Comedy Night. June 30th at The Tuning Fork. Tickets and info from moshtix.co.nz. Oh hey! What the hell mate? Hey! Hey, haven't seen you around for ages. What have you been up to? Yeah,
2: just been real bogged down thinking about space.
1: Oh like planets and yeah. black holes and stuff.
2: Yeah, quasars, asteroids, really all the space stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, so that's your new job now? Like at the observatory? Nah,
2: I've just been thinking about it. It's taken me ages, though. It's big ass.
4: OK, 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 yeah. Spaced Out. Josh Aoraki from Auckland Stardome
5: Observatory and Planetarium talks everything spacey on Spaced Out. 440 every other Tuesday, only on 95 BFM Drive.
6: are in the twilight. She was a shark smile.
2: artists that was shark smile by big thief you are on various artists with Francis and Liam on 95 bfm if you want to get in touch you can do so by giving us a text at five three seven five three nine five. five three nine5 I don't know I've been here for like two years and I forgot what the text tone was
3: oh my- Almost, there. So Probably close.
2: 75, something like that. And then you can also call us on 309 uh, 3879. Thriving at Crossroads is an ongoing University of Auckland study that's inviting young intersexual med- members of ethnic minorities to create art reflecting their experiences living in El The study will take place through workshops from July through to October, allowing participants to gain access to creative freedom, mentors, and resources, professional art spaces, coha for their time time and food provided during workshop days if you or someone you know is age between 16 to 24 identifies as asian latin american african or middle eastern and also identifies as a part of another minority group like being queer or trans or a part of a religious minority you can apply over the next week to take part in what is an incredible project i had a chat with the Young to chat about the project starting off by learning more about what the study's been like so far
5: Oh, uh, it's a really exciting study. It's actually been going for about three years. It's based at the University of Auckland, um, and it what it tries to do is take a deeper look at, into the lived experiences of ethnic minority youth who also have other identities, so they belong to other marginalised communities.
2: What is the purpose of the study? Where did its origins come from for you?
5: Uh, well, so it's I'm part of quite a large group of researchers, and most of us, have lived experience ourselves of, you know, belonging to a minority community, at least one. And we realised that when you had a look at the research out there, there wasn't much about the experiences of ethnic minority youth. And in in particular, the group that was missing were the, the youth that also had many, you know, young people don't just have one identity, they usually live in sort of multiple identities and they move between them through the day and we really didn't know much about that or how it affected people's lives and their health.
2: So what has the study looked like so far over the past three
3: years?
5: Well so this is the last phase of the study so phase four is when we're doing the creative phase and that's the phase that's currently open to recruitment. The previous four uh, three phases of the study uh, the first one looked at um, information that we already know. So it tried to sum up what we already know. For example, from studies like the Youth 2000 studies, so this was when we, you know, surveyed around 7,000 high school students and looked at, um, you know, asked them lots of questions about their lives, uh, including how they felt about themselves and also how they interacted with various services. And so we we realised from looking at that that absolutely the experience of many ethnic youth did stand out, um, as did the experience of, say, young people who were living with uh, different gender identities or different sexualities. And so there comes across this idea that actually, you know, as a young person moves through their lives, you know, they're actually, it's not, you can't just look at them and see, say... An Asian person or a Middle Eastern person, and, and sort of, you know, look at their needs based on just that. You have to look at their needs based on who they really are, all the different identities that make that person up, and also how they got there and where they might go. And so this study attempts to start to capture what that is through a range of modalities. So that the first one was really just looking at what we what we what we understood already, and that pretty much just opened up way more questions. And then the second study looked at well, how do other people regard this particular group? Um, so it looked at media discourse. It looked at media discourse in what we call mainstream media. So that's you know newspaper, radio, and English. Um, and you know, the, interestingly, the narrative from that was the complete opposite to when you actually analysed what these young people said to each other on social media, specifically on TikTok. So. It was was just sort of diametrically opposed, you know, um, how the outside world sees these people and how these people actually expand on their own experiences. And then the third part of the study was a focus group interview. So we um, had a structured interview. We recruited a group of young people who were willing to talk to us who had these multiple identities. And um, they told us a a huge amount, you know, they, um, I guess, really moving... Uh, things that they told us about living in their bodies and their identities. So yeah, and so the the, the fourth part of the study, which is the part that's just about to kick off, is the, to me the most exciting part. And I'm not I'm biased obviously because I'm the you know this is the part that I'm running. Uh, so you know from my my multiple identities as an, an artist, as a doctor, and as a child health researcher. I have brought all that together. I've brought in some uh, wonderful colleagues of mine in the arts as well as in clinical research. And we are going to basically give a group of young people all the resources they need to work together on a creative project uh, which they can freely explore. They can explore in any genre they like. Um, They'll be given access to amazing uh, creative mentors and an amazing creative space and materials and fed and... um, and there'll be some kohara in it as well for them. And they just get given pre rain to explore who they are. And kind of, I guess the, the question we're going to ask them is, what, what are we not seeing about your lives? You know, what, how can we make your stories more visible?
2: Yeah, it's really awesome to see the fourth phase of this project be so focused on the arts and how these young folks who are part of ethnic minorities and other groups, as you mentioned, um, can display their beliefs around themselves and their identity. Who is eligible to take part in this programme?
5: Yeah, that's a really important part. So we have a a number of, uh, I guess, sort of, I guess, are four conditions. Um, So the first is that you have to be aged between 16 to 24. The second is that you identify as an ethnic minority young person and um, that's very technical. So essentially if you identify as Middle Eastern, Latin American, African or Asian and um, you know and that can be part identify as well and then also, you need to identify as having a, an additional minority ident- identity. For example, you know, being in a religious feeling like you're living in a religious minority, or you're living with a disability, or uh, you know, you you otherwise feel on the outer from your ethnic community, and that is self-identified. The fourth condition, and this is, uh, you know, the, the this is this is just related to our budget, is that. We would like young people to be based within Te Aute Auckland, um, and that's just purely because we don't have enough funding to, you know, fly people in for the workshops. Um, but, you know, um, we already have one person who's coming here um, under their own steam, and obviously um, we we potentially have people that can work uh, by remote as well. So I guess if you're the message is if you're interested but you don't live in Auckland, get in touch anyway because uh, I'd love to have a chat to you.
2: Why is it uh, so important to have this fourth phase of the project be so centred around the arts and creativity for you?
5: I mean, I've, I've done arts all my life, but I guess um, I've also done a lot of science. And to me, even though the two things are intimately related, the arts allows you to dive in deep, swim through all the layers, move in uh, lots of different unexpected directions. And it is those unexpected and innovative directions that that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the things we haven't thought of as you know, boring adult researchers. We're wanting young people to kind of partner with us. They can drive this part of the study themselves. That's why there's so much freedom. Um, I've, I've tried their best my best to sort of not make any limits on where people go so there's no limits on what they explore there's no limits on um, whether or not they come with come up with a so-called output there isn't that pressure there it's pretty much just free exploration um, and that being said if people do sort of move towards a goal and come up with a play or you know like a poetry book or an art exhibition then at the end of the study we will do our very best to connect them in with the community so that they can take it further because of course i'm i and the creative mentors are all part of the current arts community in auckland and so there you know we're always obviously always looking for new talent as well
2: so it's really trying to avoid just pigeonholing it into being like, hey, this is just for paintings or sculpture or fine art. It can really be anything within the creative sphere.
5: Um. Yeah. Well, obviously within reason. I mean, you're not going to be able to fish a write and shoot a feature film in four months. But but that being said, you know, like we, I do have one one of the creative mentors has specifically got expertise in writing and filmmaking. Uh, she's an actor, and um, and also you know we have most of the mentors actually have way more than one genre that they routinely work in. So for us being cross-genre and multi-genre is pretty normal.
2: Yeah, so I guess if there's anyone listening who themselves is interested or might know someone else who's interested, what can they actually expect within the uh, period of the workshops? Like when does it start, for example?
1: Uh, so
5: the, we run from July to October, uh, we have around 30 places open. Um, we would really, really like people to consider signing up within the next week just because our very first workshop is on the 8th and the 9th of July. So it's a weekend. It runs um, from 10am to 4pm. And, and that's really the induction. You know, That's the, the part where you get to meet some of the researchers. Um, we'll tell you a little bit about what we found out to date. Um, we'll tell you why we need your help. Uh, and then basically, that that's only takes, you know, half a day. And then the, the what, next one and a half days is jump in, really kickstart that exploration. We'll keep our spots open after that date as well. And then what we hope is within your group. So I, I didn't mention that there, there are four creative mentors. And so if you sign up, you'll be put in a group. Uh, With other young people under one of the creative mentors. And so those mentors will work with the group to make a thing, Um, I guess that's a loose term. And that can happen individually, uh, online, uh, in person. And there's going to be like three more weekends that where the venue is booked for jumping in in in-person workshops. But the group may equally decide that it doesn't want to work um, or use all those in-person days. It might want to skip a day, skip a workshop or meet at another time or even do field trips. So, you know, we're, we're very open to what people might want to do and we'll do our very best to meet them, Meet the uh, sorry, meet their needs.
2: So once these workshops are finished, once it comes to the end of October, uh, what can people expect for both? I guess to start, what can people expect for the artwork that they might make? Are you going to try and see this pushed into publication or something along those lines?
5: Yeah, so there's no push for that from the research side. But, you know, we're we're expecting the people that would want to take part you know, have a little bit of a hunger, creative hunger themselves or a curiosity. So if they do come up with something, if they do actually discover, hey, you know, I really love writing or I really love moving my body, heck, how can I keep doing this? Then we will definitely make sure they, they get introduced and interlinked to the rest of the arts community because, you know, the arts community in Auckland is actually really strong. It's just a matter of finding us. Uh, And once you know one person, you usually get to know everybody else pretty quickly.
2: And then on the research side of things for you guys after October, what will kind of your final steps in the study be?
5: Oh, (laughs) then the hard work really starts. So we've already, um, we've mostly analysed the, you know, a lot of the findings already from uh, phases one, two and three, although um, we haven't got to the stage of publishing them yet. So that's why I'm not sort of saying too much about it but what will happen and again if there's any people who you know are from groups that might be interested in finding out the outcomes then also please make contact. Um, We're going to basically hold a, a series of I guess uh, workshops or presentations to kind of try to dis- dis- uh, disseminate the information on the basis that there's no use us finding it out if we it doesn't get to the people that are you know providing the services interacting with the young people trying to make everything better because uh, at the end of the day we're you know we're understanding the narrative so that we can change the narrative
2: and if people do want to take part where can they contact or where can they go to learn more information
5: yeah so the study is called thriving at crossroads you can find us at Thriving.blogs.auckland.ac.nz Yeah, yeah, we're on, uh, we've got uh, Facebook, uh, which is Thriving at Crossroads, um, with the at being the little um, at sign rather than at, and same on Instagram and same on Twitter.
2: That was Renee Liang chatting about Thriving at Crossroads, an ongoing University of Auckland study. That's inviting young and sexual members of ethnic minorities to create art reflecting their experiences living in Aotearoa. All those links will be in the podcast. You are on Various Artists with Francis and Liam. You can text us on 5395 and we will be back after these messages.
5: Brought to life from the page to the stage from the beloved Enchanted Wood series Tim Bray Theatre Company presents The Magic Faraway Tree
1: don't miss this
6: extraordinary tale from the mind of global bestseller enid Blyton. as a captivated trio discover magical lands atop an enchanted tree Timbrey theater company
5: presents the magic Faraway tree on now till july 15th at the pump house theater takapuna
1: tickets and more info from timbray.org.nz
0: what's a seven letter word for street fighter brawler
2: hey you're right okay what about treasure trunks and six tests they said you were good hey what's happening at Ponsonby Social Club this week well
1: tonight there's Warren Duncan live followed by DJ Spliff Curtis and Katya. and tomorrow Chinon Su live
3: same old Ponsonby Social
5: Club 152 Ponsonby Road
1: Oh, what a day. I love
5: e-scootering. The great outdoors, Richmond Road. Oh, I've been loving that
2: new drill wave
5: crew synthesis with a C. Well, we're signed up to my music bag. It's so flex. Whatever you're into, they send the same but different stuff and
2: ready-to-bang portions. Isn't that kind of cheating? I mean, I'm old school. Suggested YouTube videos, Shazam stuff off Netflix. And don't you have all those leftover bass lines? <laughs> Obviously, I donate the bass lines here at Vinnie's.
3: The swap meet. <laughs> Collector Guys bring you disco, boogie, funk, and soul to get you cooking. Oh, melody,
5: love me, love me, love me.
3: The Swap Meet with and Kirk, Sundays 4-7 till on 95 BFM. Boy, don't leave
6: your bass lying around here. Oh, don't suffer for your art chat.
3: Various artists with Francis and Liam. You are indeed back on Various Artists. You can text us in on 5395 if you have any thoughts on the pieces that we have aired today. Just a heads up that the following piece discusses sexual harm in the arts. On Wednesday, five years after first being charged, Sir James Hay Wallace, a well-known arts philanthropist and rich lister, was named as the prominent businessman who sexually assaulted three young men. The government has begun the process of stripping Wallace's knighthood. The news is hard to hear, but perhaps not surprising for many in the arts community. To talk about sexual harm in the arts and what Wallace losing his name suppression may mean for survivors, I talked this morning with Mal Carlsbert, Soundcheck Aotearoa's sexual harm prevention and response advisor. Here we are now. So we are talking this morning off the back of Wallace losing his name suppression. Wallace losing his name suppression um, and the arts in the media again for sexual harm is indeed frustrating, but perhaps it doesn't come as a shock to many of us in the arts community. Um, You have worked across many sectors in sexual harm advisory and response. Why do you think there is such a prevalence of sexual harm in the arts
0: Sure. Thank you. And of course, there are a number of different reasons or answers that I could give. I guess if I speak to a couple that that stand out, one is I think that is, is the issue for a lot of people in the arts is the insecurity of income. You know, a lot of freelancers, contractors, and when you combine that with, for so many creatives in particular, where their their music, their dance, their art is is everything to them it matters so much and so there's so much to lose for example if they were to speak out and so I think though that makes it easier for for power to be abused um, I, I also think the another part that can intersect with that but uh, in a number of ways is the types of workplaces and spaces they eh? like for example bars studios, sometimes people's homes, have, have little or sometimes no protection for for people. And so again, that can be ex- exploited. And And I guess the third point that just because we, we hear it and see it talked about a lot is the way that the alcohol or when alcohol has been consumed and then the person has behaved badly. I'm not just thinking sexual harm here, but the way that sometimes the behaviour is excused as as if then the person who was drunk isn't then accountable for their behaviour because of the alcohol, and I think that can really um, lead to, um, of course, more harm and less safety.
3: And I know you can't speak to the Wallace cases, perhaps specifically, but in your experience, what does an abuser losing name suppression like um, James Wallace has, what does it mean to survivors?
0: Yeah, I think that while, of course, there's going to be all kinds of different reactions from, from, from survivors that I think one of the ones that I hear, one of the reactions I hear is that at last the shame is squarely where it belongs. I think often when someone has been harmed or abused and then, uh, then perhaps there's a process of telling people, dealing with reactions, for uh, some people then reporting it, um, having an investigation, a trial, and all through all of that, When there's name suppression, uh, the shame for some survivors can still feel like it's sitting all with them. And so I think that's one of the biggest um, things that can happen with um, name suppression lifted.
3: There are other implications uh, because of the lifting of Wallace's name suppression, Uh, like him being stripped of his knighthood, and I'm sure things will happen with perhaps his art Collections are in the places that he's put funding into the arts. What do those kind of changes signal to the wider community about sexual harm in the industry? Mm.
0: I, I mean, I, I hope that people see responses like that. For example, removing uh, a title or an honour or uh, those those kinds of things. I, I, I hope that people, or I'm also. Maybe it's this about what I hope and I imagine that some people do think that's very appropriate—that uh, someone who's been found guilty of these offences doesn't um, deserve, shouldn't be holding such a title or honour. And I guess I also wonder about it more broadly, though, uh, as, as if it is a reaction, and then it's, and then nothing else happens. For example. Uh, there's the you know some media stories there's a reaction for example the removal of the knighthood or some consideration about you know for example a name on a building etc et, et uh then that's not enough and i would and i can imagine a lot of people out there in all kinds of arts communities who are thinking because that's one person or one individual where there's this response but what about all the environments that the arts is is happening and what about what are all the actions that can be done to make those environments safer and, and less likely for harm to happen to anyone
3: and that was what i wanted to touch on next obviously even us speaking on the phone right now is reactive to this news and it's got it's it's got it's having you know it's time in the media but that media attention will die down we know that of media cycles so what is the best thing or best things we can do to continue to stay aware and keep this conversation open after media attention dies down sure
0: and and such an important question so just just to acknowledge it, I think for some people why they say the removing of an honour or a title makes a difference is because it's so tangible. Eh? And I think sometimes in terms of... We, if we talk about creating safer spaces or having a conversation or preventing sexual harm or um, creating environments which are more inclusive, that all of that can seem less concrete to people. However, I guess what I, what I would... Um, offer or um, put out there to people is that there is so much that we can do and so say for example uh, ScreenSafe so for those within the screen sector and it's ScreenSafe.co.nz they have a whole lot of resources in, in regards to some of the things we're talking about here SoundCheck Aotearoa also have a lot of resources. And I know resources on their own aren't going to end a problem, but it's the use of those resources and the discussion around those resources and whether it's codes of conduct and those being adapted for the festival, for the gigs, for the studio um, by the mentor, whether it's the house rules, whether it's the health and safety, not only from the you know trips, falls and cords kind of perspective, but also about uh, making sure that um, there is, uh, that the space is safe for all, not just in relation to sexual harm of course, but um, racial harm and homophobia and, and, other, and other ways that people can get excluded and isolated. There's workshops, for example, the Professional Respect Workshop, which is such a great place for People both within this, um, so the screen uh, industry run them, uh, soundcheck run them. And so there's great places for people to come, meet others in their respective communities and have discussions and exchange ideas, ex- exchange, uh, uh, kind of sometimes collaborate going forward on ways of increasing safety. Uh, having chats about what's above the line, below the line, uh, and, and, and any kind of group or team or place of people, those are a few of my thoughts.
3: <laughs> and I'm sure there's many more, but um, some yeah, very good and practical ones there. If if the news stories arising out of Wallace's name release are bringing up past traumas uh, or instances of sexual harm experienced in the arts, where can people go to talk about and address those?
0: Thank, thank you for asking that question. It's, so, There's an, a number of options for people. That the, the first one I'll say is a place called Safe to Talk, which is an independent 24-7 helpline uh, specialist. It's got a, a particular focus on sexual harm, and it's 0800 044 334 or text 4334. And essentially anyone can contact safe to talk for information, uh, um, advice, guidance, uh, good listening, but it can be with any kind of question about any aspect of, of sexual harm. It could be the person accused of sexual harm, for example, could call them. It could be the friend or family member of them, or it could be a, um, a survivor or friend or family of them. So that's for, for anyone throughout the whole of Aotearoa. And then in terms of music communities in particular, uh, the, the, my role as the sexual harm prevention and response advisor, so the, um, the CHAPRA was in the in music communities, anyone can reach out to me regardless of role, regardless of question, and either I can link them into a pre- the prevention specialist through Soundcheck or I can... Um, in some instances, refer them on to um, uh, the appropriate place for them, or I can do some problem-solving, figuring out, listening, uh, making a plan uh, with with that person. And so that's shapra at soundcheck.co.nz.
3: Great. Thank you, Mel. And we'll put that link to the website up on our um, Bcast after the show. That was Soundcheck Aotearoa's sexual harm prevention and response advisor, Mel Carlsberg, talking with me about sexual harm in the arts in the wake of James Wallace losing his name suppression. And Liam is going to lead us out of it with a track because they're very excited about...
2: Mount Airy, pretty much. <laughs> We've got a quick track from the Microphones for Alvaroom's project before Mount Airy, uh, a classic, I have Felt Your Shape. They'll be playing at Wimmy Bar on the 1st of October in its most excited gig... Probably ever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I thought I felt your shape, but I was wrong. Really, all I felt was falsely strong. I held on tight. I had no sense of your size. It was dumb to hold so tight. Uh, But last night
5: It's a 95BFM art guide on various artists. It's paintings in that.
3: Thamiri, Friday the 30th of June, just opened uh, in the window gallery at Studio One Toy Two Pop. Up space on Karangahapi Road. Welsh Māori illustrator Sarah Moana's feminine ra- feminine rage artwork is on until the 26th of July.
2: Tomorrow, Saturday, the 1st of July, is the 17th annual Estuary Art and Ecology Awards exhibition opening and awards ceremony ceremony on from 2:30 p.m. Also opening tomorrow from 2 to 4 p.m. is May Hill's Te Wāhine, elevating and celebrating the creativity of our wāhine at Depot Art Space, 28 Clarence Street. At Davenport.
3: Ra Tapu Sunday, 2nd of July, the Faux Climate Action Network invites you to a free screening of Living the Change at the Hollywood Avondale. Watch together on the big screen stories of New Zealand communities coming together and pioneering change in their own lives. This film shares solutions as any one of us can be part of uh, that any one of us can be part of at home and in our neighbourhood.
2: From Ratu, Tuesday the fourth of July until Ramadan Thursday the sixth of July is photo from silent auction. View and bid for works at SKAR Image Lab, One New Bond Street, Kingsland, from the fourth to the sixth of July. Closing bids will be from six to eight pm on the sixth, and all sales will support photo from's online and print publishing program.
3: Ramere, Thursday the sixth of July. July when uh, the photo forum silent auction closes, there is the opening of LA music photographer Chris Cafaro at New Zealand Music music Photo Exhibition. Uh, The photos were shot in January and February of this year and the exhibition shows at Art News Aotearoa. That's Level 9, 10 Lawn Street. The photographs are up for auction via webs online and admission to the exhibition is free.
2: If you have an event, exhibition or anything else you want to get onto the Art Guide, you can get in touch with us at arts 95bfm.com
5: That was the 95bfm Art
2: Guide. Various artists
3: with Francis and Liam. mo wiki? e o mo That's all for us on various artists for today.
2: Cheers to those who chatted with us.
3: Aha, let me just go back through <laughs> and find who that was. Thanks very much to Victoria Wynne-Jones and also to Mal Carlsberg.
2: And thank you to Renee Leung from Thriving at Crossroads.
3: hoki te koto e ana. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, as always, you can listen back to all of those conversations and more at 95bfm.com.
2: Ka hoki mai matoa a wiki. Next up is Land of the Good Groove. You are listening to 95 BFM.
0: 95 bfm podcast support 95 bfm with a b card go to 95bfm.com sign up